0: i wonder how much of how much correlation versus causation there is between people in new york traditionally having a really close relationship with their books mm-hmm. and the the number of windowless walls in apartments <laughs>
1: <laughs> so many so many so many damn
2: books Uh, Welcome to the show, John Hodgman. Thank you. Hello. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And this is So Many Damn Books. John Hodgman, um, if you're not aware who he is, and you listen to this show, I'd be surprised. How's that even possible? Yeah, we talk about your work a lot. Oh,
0: hang on. I got a Google News alert. You just mentioned me on the show.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You are the author of um, the Areas of My Expertise series. Yes. And um, are also a performer and... Daily Show correspondent, sometimes, and Man About Town, as well as the yeah. author of the most recent paperback release, and uh, Vacation Land.
0: All of these things are true, and I can even see, for those of you listening uh, who are not in this room, <laughs> which which is probably more than the people who are in this room. <laughs> we, we hope this. Uh, I'm I'm here in uh, uh, so many damn books headquarters, mm-hmm. where there are so many damn books, and yes. they're all beautifully displayed and. I feel like I'm catching up with a lot of old friends, <laughs> seeing a lot of names that I recognize, some that I don't, and I even noticed you have a box set of complete of the complete World Knowledge series. My first three books. Over oh there. yes, so that and you and you and you tastefully put it toward sort of toward the end <laughs> <laughs> so, so to convince me that you didn't just drag it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been there. So thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure.
2: I want to tell you about tell them all about the drink that I made for you. Oh yes. Yeah. which I'm calling uh, the Hodge Maine,
0: H O D G M A I N E. Yes. All right. I think I might put a dash. Sure, you can do it. You invented it. <laughs> um, and and I'm drinking it on an empty stomach, so I'm <laughs> uh, forgive me for intruding. Go on. <laughs> uh,
2: and it's a uh, it's well blueberry uh, syrup is where I started because um, it is the state fruit of Maine. Um, there's a yeah. lot of blueberries up there. Yes, that's true. And Vacation Land is uh, the name of is a it's a nickname for the state of Maine. Maine, an ironic one, but yeah,
0: <laughs> a true one all the same.
2: And uh, so I start with blueberry syrup, and then I have gin and vermouth, um, lemon, and some lavender bitters on top, and it's made of very fuchsia, I would say, yeah. colored drink.
0: When you first described it to me, I I in my brain you're like it's it's Gin, vermouth, blueberry syrup. And at that point, I was like, uh, to quote, to paraphrase uh, Samuel Clemens, a good martini spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, don't say that, because it's a terrible dad joke. <laughs> it's rude. And then I tasted it. It's actually quite good. Oh, I've glad. not had... A, I mean, as a sometime resident of the state of Maine more recently, which is what the book is about to some degree... I've been, I've had a lot of blueberry flavored garbage, <laughs> foisted <laughs> yeah, foisted on me, and this is this is good though. I like it. Well, I think yeah. a key
2: here is that it's real blueberry syrup. Like I made the, I think that that it's uh, not like fake in any way.
0: You made it? Yeah, you made the blueberry syrup. Yeah. What's going on in this? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll That's be. an excellent question. <laughs> I was, um, I guess, I was nineteen, and I was in college, and I was studying. This is a, this is relates to something. Trust me, <laughs> not just blueberry syrup going to my head. Like, no, that is also happening. But I was studying uh, uh, the uh, Jorge Luis Borges, was my favorite writer at, at the time, and still one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And I had convinced the Spanish department, uh, I had applied for a grant to go to travel and mm-hmm. I want and I got the money, a thousand dollars to mm. go to Buenos Aires. And really, I just wanted to go to Buenos Aires and hang around <laughs> what I did. yeah but ostensibly it was to research the you know uh, Borges is, is from Argentina, but mm-hmm. he was never not really considered an Argentine national writer um in part because he was so worldly and cosmopolitan mm-hmm. in his in his work in part because he learned English before he learned Spanish at least as a reading and written language. Oh wow. And um, and in part because Argentina Argentine nationalism which was definitely a real thing mm-hmm. did not like him and you know the Peron regime fired him from the director of being the director of the national uh, the national library and appointed him a regional poultry inspector because he was not <laughs> sufficiently pro Okay, um, And so I was there to sort of talk to, you know, boots on the ground, as it were, or in my case, converses, on the ground, uh, on the, on the cosmopolitan streets of Buenos Aires, talking to people about the influence, or if there was any. Mm-hmm. And I met a guy named Osvaldo Ferrari, who was a guy who had come out with a number of books called Dialogos, which were interviews with Borges that he had done towards the end of Borges' life when he was still in Buenos Aires. His, he had moved to Switzerland, I believe, and died there, but he was still there. And I went to this guy's house. All these interviews were, were, were uh, all in Spanish. They had never been translated. Mm-hmm and his whole house was like this one was filled with books but they're all his own books Whoa! Mm. and they're all different editions of these interviews that he had done with Borges wow and i immediately took a disliking to this person <laughs> because, <laughs> because he seemed to have done nothing but feast on on the bones of this dying writer <laughs> and tra- and translate that into some literary reputation for himself mm. And we had this conversation and I had, uh, I had Spanish at the time. I can't speak it anymore. I just, you know, it was uh, anyway, we, I did my best, Mm -hmm. but then he kind of drifted into English a little bit. And I said, well, before we go, do you mind if I take your picture? And he goes, no, not at all. I said, okay. So I took his picture and he goes, I will do one more and i will make like i am talking <laughs> and i'm like okay <laughs> and those of you listening along can't see what he did but he th- these guys i can show you he, what he literally did was he sat there and he went <laughs> and he gestured and he and he, mo- he put his mouth into this weird rictus like uh, that did not did not correlate to any 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 word form that mm. could be thought of and I was taking this guy's pictures as he was pretending. It was just part of his routine that he would pretend <laughs> to talk for the photo, for the newspaper or whatever it is. And I'm like, this guy is a big phony. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that sounds like um, he was making the voice or the shape of um, like Charlie Brown. Teacher. Charlie Brown teacher. Uh-huh. Talk. Yeah. yeah. No,
0: that's right. It really was like, if wah, you want to know wah, what it looked wah. like, it's like, wah, wah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
2: Wow. Well, that's all the time we had. <laughs> i'd I'd like to talk about um it seems like you started with your three books of your fake facts and then and then this memoir and essays and there was and it seems like that's those are two very different modes that you were in but that's only if you were following you through your books you know you had this in-between time where You were performing these things. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, what it was like to, you had this other life of performance in between, and I wondered if you missed writing, or if you were always, like, doing this because you thought you'd write a book about it, or?
0: No, I mean, I didn't think that I would. I, um, so, yeah, I wrote, I mean, the, the thumbnail for those of you who don't know me personally and probably if you're listening to this we've met three times I bet probably (laughs) but you know I wrote I wrote a book called the areas of my expertise which was a very arch and sort of absurdist humor book of fake facts before fake news was what it is today (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh it you know but it was very very light silly humor as I say absurdist sort of Monty Python-esque humor uh imitating a book of trivia Um, But instead of a list of the nine U.S. presidents who, you know, or like the nine leaders who died while having sex, Mm -hmm. it was the nine U.S. presidents who had hooks for hands. Right. (laughs) And I would make up all these fake stories and fake history. And that put me onto The Daily Show and started a very implausible career on camera. And I was able to follow up with two further books of that to create this one giant total book of complete world knowledge that was totally made up and fake and very arch. And that was my... Such as it was, that was my brand. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, the, the la- that last book, that is all, the third in that series came out um, in paperback in 2012, and I did a I did I, I had begun essentially doing my imitation of stand-up comedy by then, <laughs> doing book tours, and I right. was, you know performing material from the books without reading them. So I did it as a as a Netflix special. Mm-hmm. Um, and I as 2013 dawned, I was like I really enjoy the performing but I'm really out of material at this point because the books are done and a lot of the a lot of the arguable comedy and that is all and in the special that grew out of it which was called Ragnarok just left Netflix everybody can't oh. ever check it out again <laughs> <laughs> A lot of those stories were based were, were timely in the sense that they're based around the 2012 apocalypse hysteria that was mm-hmm. going around at that time famously happened as we all know yeah Yeah. well right just four years later (laughs) (laughs) so in 2013 i'm like i can't tell my my ancient mayan apocalypse jokes anymore i have to come up with new new things to say and do and i really you know the style of those books and my humor up to that point had been truly like how can i work a zeppelin into it (laughs) what's the most obscure weird nerdy reference i can make and build out of that and I was having a hard time making those jokes anymore. And so here in Brooklyn, I, I took the advice of Mike Brabiglia, comedian and storyteller, who had suggested sometime before that I do a residency at Union Hall, where he works out his new material. And mm-hmm. so I did. And and so starting in January of 2013, and and, and going until really until um, uh, middle of 2016, I did a first weekly and then monthly secret show called Secret Society. Mm-hmm. And just gave myself a deadline to say what was on my mind. Because knowing what's on your mind is not as easy as you think. Right, And sometimes you need a deadline to break it out of you. (laughs) And so a lot of the stories that ended up being in vacation land came from that period of time. Because what I realized as I was doing my, my comedy was that I wasn't making... The, the, all the phony John Hodgman and, and the 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 resident expert John Hodgman who was on the Daily Show, later the deranged millionaire who was on the Daily Show and the crazy John Hodgman who was in these books, mm-hmm. has kind of, had kind of gone away, and now it was just true stories from my my life as I was sort of experiencing, uh, you know, the the beginnings and now the full flower of middle age, and um, that ended up being sort of the the shows that I would take out on the road mm-hmm. and then eventually became this book vacation land.
2: Do you feel like that care that, I mean like there was the John Hodgman character that you were yeah. referring to, but do you still feel like now that you, now you have a different sort of character now that you've put this down in like the vacation land, John Hodgman, like are you, are you realizing that you're making personas with every book?
0: Um, um, sh- 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 no, I mean, <laughs> it's very possible that that's true. Mm-hmm. But I don't realize it. <laughs> you know? uh, I think that, you know, I, the the Orwell quote, which is m- mostly about, um, you know, social activism and, and social critique, mm-hmm. and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, t- t- it, it, it takes work to see what's right in front of your nose, mm-hmm. is also true about the creative world. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are times, you know, for me, when I hit upon, it took me some time to hit upon this idea of doing this sort of wacky, um, funhouse mirror version of both history and contemporary life mm-hmm. by telling fake facts mm-hmm. and being, and telling them very straightforwardly mm-hmm. um, and and as deadpan as possible. And and in in a way, playing on the authority of the straight white man to say whatever he wants to and... And get a pass Mm -hmm. in order to pass pass across in the books and in the in the Daily Show sort of really I I hoped to be transgressive and scary ideas (laughs) and funny ideas. In that sense, I knew that I was building a character and that was a fun character to play with and hide behind because that character could be a monster.
2: Right, sort of like a, it's like a Colbert, sort of, when he was doing The report. Abso- absolutely, yeah.
0: yeah. And if you're suggesting that uh, Stephen Colbert stole that idea from, no. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I was always, if ever, a fifth-rate Stephen Colbert, but, you know, it, it was very much, he was, you know, he, he described it as a high-status idiot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what he was doing. I mean, there's no question that he was influential upon me, because I was watching The Daily Show when he was a correspondent. hmm and I joined the Daily Show in 2006. He had not started the rapport, but he was doing that mm-hmm, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And also, another huge influence upon me was Christopher Morris, a, a British comedian who created something called Brass Eye. I'm not sure if you ever saw it. No, mm-hmm. but it was an imitation news magazine show in England that was, um, I, I mean, it really was the areas of my expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that he was saying the most. Re- he was reporting the quote unquote news one of the shows each show had a theme and one of the themes was drugs <laughs> and he was reporting on a fictitious drug that he claimed was sweeping <laughs> england called cake <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was a pill about the size of a throw pillow <laughs> or a small throw, like a yellow pill about about the so size holding of holding it. Yeah. And one of the hallmarks of Brass Eye. And and, you know, this would have been in the late 90s, I would guess. Mm-hmm. And so very contemporaneous with what The Daily Show was doing with its interviews of people. Mm-hmm. But he would go to public figures in England and and interview them and say, we're doing this show about this drug called cake. Here is a tablet. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you want to say about it? Yeah. And the and the you know, the celebrities would be like, they would look at the camera very sincerely and hold this thing and go, This has to stop. <laughs> 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 That's and it was amazing. just it was this incredible, you know, send up of news hysteria and celebrity sense of obligation Mm -hmm. to comment on things they know nothing about. It was very much predictive of Twitter in that regard. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea had been out there before, but the idea of being a character felt very natural to me. And, but when that, when that went away, it's, you know, like at, at, I remember sitting with our mutual friend, John Roderick, Mm -hmm. A dear friend and the musician and writer and artist and everything else at Little Purity on Seventh Avenue in Park Slope, New York, near where I live. So now I guess you can find me weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> and just uh, on the January after the world did not end in 2012, and not knowing what to do, like it wasn't just that I lost my material; it was that I did not feel like doing that character anymore, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I and I didn't know what to replace it with. Mm. And the instincts that had carried me through, probably you know at that point a dozen years of creative life, if not more, Mm -hmm. from McSweeney's to the areas of expertise to The Daily Show to everything else. I just you know there are times when you just don't know what's next, Mm -hmm. and that that I I think is true now. Like to me, it was to just become myself in the most candid way possible. Um, But it's definitely the case that I look back at. I look back at the pictures of me just on this past book tour, mm-hmm. where I'm wearing, I'm wearing a a weird uh, a weird dad baseball hat with a Bangor and Aroostook Railroad Safety Award emblem on it, and shorts, <laughs> and an orange bowling shirt, and I'm like, oh, look at that dumb costume. I'm wearing. <laughs> I guess, I guess honest, sincere John Hodgman is also some kind of a clown, so, <laughs> but it wasn't my intent at that time. I see. I see. I'm,
1: I'm curious to know. I saw. Uh, It wasn't one of the Secret Society shows, but you did a a stint at Under the Radar Festival, the public theater in January 2014. And the show was called I Stole Your Dad. Yeah. And that story ends up in this collection.
0: Yeah. I needed all my material. (laughs) Well, I'm
1: wondering how I'm thinking about it a little bit from the theatrical standpoint. But how did that material transition from the stage to the page? Was it that you, you worked it and you got it to a place and then you're just like bleh? here it is on the page or did you find that you had to shift it for a different audience?
0: Well, the, you know, so the secret society shows, as I say, began in 2013 by 2014, I had this show called, I stole your dad, which had been, which had come out of all of those, Mm -hmm. those evenings at union hall and none of it was written down. So for me, that was, I mean, I had, I would make notes about, I, you know, sort of gestures and ideas and moments and then assemble it on stage. Wow. And then uh, and then I recorded them, but I didn't often go back. Mm-hmm. But I remembered enough of the details that I could tell the story again and again. And, I, and by the time you saw it at Under the Radar, I had been touring it around. Right. So I knew the stories very well at that point, how to tell them. But they had never really thoroughly been written down. So that was an exciting new... That was an exciting change. Because what I had done before was I wrote, 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 and then I adapted that stuff to perform on book tour. Mm. Now I was just talking, 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 and it really wasn't until 20, let's see, what year is it now? 18. Right. So it really wasn't until the spring of 2017, the first half of 2017, when I really wrote the book Wow. to come out in the fall of 2017, because turnaround is fast now. (laughs) <laughs> um, I thought that I could do it in a compressed time period and I could because I had I had all these stories right I didn't necessarily imagine that I would include that particular story I stole your dad in this book until I realized oh I, I have I need everything <laughs> 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 like if right. I just did the vacation land was the show that I developed after uh, the I stole your dad show mm-hmm. and that was the one that felt really had a beginning middle and end that I think could, I could adapt to a book but I, when I started writing that one out, I'm like, oh, I need a lot more material. I have to go back and grab all that other stuff from I Stole Your Dad, which I had never written down. Right. So for the stories like the I Stole Your Dad story, that that is, I'm not going to say it's verbatim what I performed. Obviously, being able to sit down and write, your the requirements are different. You can take more time. You can spend more time in description. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hit laugh points at a certain cadence in order to keep <laughs> a live audience's attention in the same way. You can right. develop things more slowly and fill in more blanks. But mostly m- that story is ha- as I told it on stage. Mm. What the experience of writing the book, I mean, the experience of writing the book was also totally new because I had never, I was never, I never developed the stories that far before I even sat down to write. Right, right. So the ones that appeared in the shows, I kind of, I knew all of the beats and I knew where they ended for the most part. They didn't change that much. But then they would suggest and remind me of other stories that had happened in my life that I could then write out. Mm. And then other topics related to either Western Massachusetts, which is where I spent a good portion of sort of my, my young I'm going to say my young adulthood, but in book terms, that means 13, 14 years old, some of that. But, you know, like when I was in my 20s, Maine, where I'm, I'm, you know, going into my 40s and and soon 50s and then death, you know, and the metaphoric wilderness of middle age that connects those two. You know, I could pull other stories out and sort of explore them even and also had the freedom to do so without worrying that they necessarily be funny. Right. Mm because it wasn't a comedy show. This was some, something else, whatever it is.
1: is. That brings up something very interesting because... I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward to hearing what that is. <laughs> So I think that I approached this book as I imagine a great many people did. It's John Hodgman. It's going to be funny. This is another, it's a humor book. And largely speaking, it is. This book is hilarious. Thank but you. There's an essay close to the end uh, called So Thin is the Skin of My People. Yeah. That threw me for a loop in right. a way that redefined the book for me. And and I as I watched sort of like the the critical press rollout and a bunch of people were like, Oh, the funny stuff's good, but I'm, I'm worried or I'm not worried. I'm interested in knowing about what it was like for you to make that shift and to decide I, John Hodgman, funny man, I'm actually going to bare my soul and talk about something deeply serious.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for your words about that. I'm, I won't, I mean, you know, we, we know each other from Twitter and I enjoy the podcast, but, I think you said something about it on on Twitter about that essay that really I mean I was very touched that it, it resonated with you because it was the piece that I, I you know I was most concerned about yeah. being in the book in part tonally and in part because I thought my neighbors in Maine might murder me. <laughs> <laughs> and the piece um you know I I think it bears explaining to the very few number of people who have not yet read and bought my book, Vacation Land, available in paperback now. <laughs> it's a very handsome paperback. Uh, yeah. thank you. I agree. Uh, thank, uh, thank Aaron Draplin for the design. But, um, you know, it's a piece of that that circles around uh, a big secret. So my wife and I, my wife loves Maine more than any other place or person on earth, and dragged <laughs> our family up there on many vacations. Many summers because she teaches and I'm self-employed and our our kids are unemployable and we would <laughs> <laughs> drag us up there to see her dad uh, quite a bit and always wanted to have a place there. And um, thanks in large part to uh, television, um, when a place became available a few years ago that we could afford, we bought it in this small town that had been the home of, uh, of a very famous well-known writer that happened to be one of my wife's very favorite writers of all time, and we had no idea that this that this town had, had been the home of this writer that who had written a lot about Maine mm-hmm. and this town, and that was because he was very pry very pry and shy about it. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, blueberry syrup. <laughs> uh, he was. Uh, do not edit that out. I want that in the, in the podcast. Um. And uh, and and I was thinking a lot about privacy, and um, and at the same time, uh, the the I think it was the third summer we were there. Um, uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed by police in quick succession, and it, and though the Black Lives Matter movement had been developing, um, it, it, there were many many huge protests, mm-hmm. and, uh, in in real life. Um, and then a weird sort of noxious counter protest online mm-hmm. right. from people who felt that saying black lives matter means somehow that white lives matter less, which is absurd and unseemly to complain about. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in Maine at this time, um, which is, I think, still true, the, you know, statistically the whitest state in the United States very close three three way race with Vermont <laughs> and New Hampshire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to not and to not you know to, n- n- Portland Maine and Lewiston Maine there's a bit there is a big West African refugee community mm-hmm. uh, that is now a, a multi-generational community of West African uh, people of people of West African descent in Maine there are parts of Maine that are quite diverse but where we are not particularly at all right. even in among summer visitors you know and it, and living in New York, um, you can you kind of forget. You know the, the the benefit of living in a big city is you see other people. Mm-hmm. And one thing and the benefit of being white is when you go to an all white place, it doesn't feel weird. because <laughs> <laughs> You're <laughs> just seeing yourself, right? Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it really made me quite conscious of the fact that, you know, we have a lot of reckoning to do with race specifically and other issues. Um, of inclusivity in the United States but if uh, all of that heartbreak was on my computer mm-hmm. and if I closed my computer in maine it disappeared and race could I, I, it was the first time I appreciated the privilege of being able to turn off race right mm-hmm. as an idea um, which is obviously people who are do not look like me cannot turn off no matter almost no matter where they are right you mm-hmm. know so and and what that has to do with, uh, I felt that I needed to address that to some degree in the book. Um, I also had a story that 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 I also had a story that sort of interwove with that idea and the house of the famous writer that lived in that town. And I knew they were connected somehow. and I knew that if I, if I told my if I explored those feelings and and included them in the book, That it might be terrible, that it might be very tone deaf and bad, and it may still be. I mean, I can't judge. You liked it, but you're another white dude, so who knows? (laughs) Um, (laughs) In terms of talking about specifically talking about this writer and this writer's house, it would be revealing a town secret right Mm -hmm. in a public way that an outsider, a recent transplant into a place, is very attuned to who is from here and who is from away Mm -hmm. might might feel a little bit grody and Mm -hmm. then also talking about some people I saw on Instagram in a creepy lurky way might be rude Mm. but even when I was writing the the phony facts and the absurdist stuff you know you just know sometimes that you have like it has to be true on some level Mm -hmm. even the fakest joke has to resonate with some inner truth or some uh, some truthful reflection of your obsession and Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about it and it just seemed unfaithful to my experience to not talk about it even within the context of a book that was otherwise ostensibly for (laughs) ha-has right and the truth is that you know for better for worse uh I wanted to give You know, I wanted to be honest in this book, in the same way in the other books. Like there are times when it gets a little less haha and a little Mm -hmm. bit more Mm -hmm. circumspect, definitely. But like, you know, that's that's all all I have to offer is my whole self, (laughs) right? And it seems like if I'm going to get people to pay money for it, I might as well give all of it, right? (laughs) And they can reject it or or not. And you know, some people some people liked that section, some people did not like that section. Mm -hmm. Um, The only I'm I'm grateful. This sounds very defensive and i guess it is i'm grateful to say that the people who did not like that section tended to be other white dudes mm-hmm. um and that's fine i mean i think their point of view is absolutely valid right but i think that there were a lot of you know the talking about privilege in this book was not where not where Anybody including me expected it to go. Right. Mm-hmm. But once you realize that it's essentially a story about a you know a a, a, a guy who has two summer homes, how can you not talk about it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Another essay from this book. Makes me think um, about the boat essay a little beyond the limits of safe travel. Yeah. Um, there's this. Thanks
0: for knowing the names of these things. I don't remember the names
2: of <laughs> them. Um They uh, there. There's this part where your family wins or
0: like wins a boat. We win a we we accidentally buy a boat. Yeah. A, not a yacht. No. It's a rowboat. It's a rowboat. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a lovely rowboat. And and like well, we, it's in an auction situation, and we we bid on it and um, and won somehow win.
2: Yeah, and people seem it was not a
0: very competitive
2: auction, <laughs> <laughs> but people still are a little put out by the fact that you guys or uh, your but you cast yourself in this story. Basically, there's this moment where you're like, "What if this is something that happens in this town all the time?" And they like do right. this every summer yeah Uh, it's
0: it's interesting like so so there so the boat had been built i mean you know the pardon me you you know just to go back for a second you know it was it was our friend john roderick who who pointed out when i was telling some of these stories for the first time right back announced me by saying ladies and gentlemen the the white privilege mortality comedy of John Hodgman. <laughs> he didn't say mortality. That was my ad. Sorry, that was my punch up. He said the the white privilege comedy of John Hodgman, and that was like, oh right, that's what this is. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that and, and I think that that is sort of the 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 message of the book that m- might be accessible to people who do not. Have a summer home in Maine, which is, <laughs> you know, and pri- privilege is something you have without realizing it, and it's hard to figure. It's hard to know who you are a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and sometimes you keep these myths of who you are, um, and who who you know who you who you wanted to be in your twenties or whatever, and you keep them going through your thirties and forties, and then you realize, oh, I said, no, no, I'm a I'm an adult, or I'm a dad, or I'm a I'm a failure, or I'm a success, or whatever it is, and like those moments of clarity where. The, uh, the stories you tell about yourself fall away and you realize this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was sort of in one of those moments of clarity where m- my wife and I were so shook up about the fact like, oh, we're not young anymore. Mm-hmm. And we live on this road with a bunch of retirees in Maine. This is us. This mm-hmm. is who we are. And our kids sensing this just stopped talking to us for the rest of the summer. Like they smelled death on us <laughs> and, and my son wouldn't really play with me anymore. And our daughter would just bike down to the graveyard in town and she would go and visit the grave of that famous author who's there. And hell yeah, I suppose dance on it I guess. <laughs> because it's her turn now or whatever. And, and, and left to our own devices, we fulfilled our most loathsome Caucasian class destiny, which was we bought this boat. <laughs> we, bought, we bought it by accident. Is this boat? This this it's a peapod, which is a very traditional Maine rowboat that's pointed on both ends, so it looks like a peapod. It was built in the town by a famous local resident who is now dead, mm-hmm. and it was for auction to raise money for a church. And everyone in town thought it was going to go for a lot of money, and because of that, we thought we would bid on it. And I forced my wife to make the opening bid on it just for fun. And then one and one person bid against her, and then she was really excited. She bid a bid at that person, and then no one else bid. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we own this boat that we have no business owning, mm-hmm. and it's not just a boat that we. I mean, it's on a trailer. We don't have a hitch. We can't get it back. Like we don't. <laughs> And we've never launched a boat before. We've never owned a boat before. We don't know what's involved in it, even a rowboat. Mm-hmm. And it's a piece of local history. Right. And here we are, these goofballs from away who just sort of, like, it's the worst, the thing that you don't want to be mm-hmm. is the the New Yorker who swans in and goes, <laughs> well, I'll have it. <laughs> <laughs> and outbids everyone. But everyone was really nice about it. And they were like, you bought a Jim Steel Peapod? You know, for X amount of money, read the book if you want to find out. Uh, you know, good for you. What a bargain! And it went on for weeks. Everyone would point out, "You're the people who bought that Peapod. Good for you. What a bargain!" Huh. We'd be rowing it through the the harbor, and they'd be like,
3: "Peapod!" Like,
0: <laughs> and it really began to feel like they were gaslighting us. <laughs> some, some, like the 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 town was playing some trick on us, and that maybe they had tricked us into buying the boat and then they were going to fatten us up with compliments <laughs> until until the end of the summer when they would ritually murder us <laughs> and take the boat back and and then in a sort of Shirley Jackson's the lottery style this would somehow like a, make the corn or you know the lobster the the lobster harvest would be good that year <laughs> i was
2: thinking more like hot fuzz it's for the good of the for the good of the oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah Probably, of course yeah, yeah right
0: the greater good
2: <laughs> yeah for the greater good for the greater good um but i I was curious if that if you feel like you have a tendency to cast yourself in stories because of being a bookish person or or someone who can't because I know you're you joke about it and you also talk about it very seriously in vacation land that you were a former literary agent and that is pro- I was a former professional no. literary agent right
0: yeah uh, we all uh, cast ourselves in stories. I mean, I think that it's just a question of how conscious you are of the stories that you're casting yourself in, right? I mean, none, none of us goes through life without imagining that it's some narrative. Mm-hmm. For me, it comes naturally because I'm a narcissist. i always, <laughs> always imagine that the story of John Hodgman is the most interesting story of all time, but... Mm-hmm you know how would we go forward if we did not feel that there was some beginning middle and purposeful end to our life i mean it would take real nihilism to and and frankly existential discipline to rid yourself of that delusion and why do you why would you bother to do it if, you know, <laughs> if you're really an existentialist you know we're all you know rotten meat at the end so <laughs> hell so yeah. why, not? why not tell a story about it yeah. you know so i think that um you know, the it. there was something that happened fairly, you know, I was a literary agent largely because I liked telling stories and I liked reading stories. I thought that I would be a writer, but it seemed like a lot of work mm-hmm. and I enjoyed reading other people's stories and I thought maybe I can just make some money off of people who are willing to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's literally why I was going to do it. And, you know, because I I like other writers and I like helping them. And it's, it's, and if if I can get paid doing that, then I don't have to do it. Right. Um, Because it's hard. I mean, I think being a writer is a hard way to live. And most people who are not consciously writers or creative people of any kind are still telling stories about themselves. But Mm -hmm. it's deep background stuff Mm -hmm. for them, you know. And that might be where they, where they exist in their community, where they exist in their religion, where they exist in their families. You know, like those are the kinds of stories it only was recently that a lot of people like it it came to me that a lot of people go through life without stopping to think about like what's happening here. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, who's this person? What role are they playing? Like what's the story in this situation? I mean, a lot of people live very happy and fulfilling lives that are unmediated by that kind of constant self narration all the time. I think it's, never occurred to me it would be so nice yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah. and i've had the opportunity uh, you know to do some acting because of the tv stuff and man you guys if if i were better at that and could just do that all the time i would just that would be the greatest like to have someone else write a thing and then you just and then you just step in and yeah. you know rather than Make the connections and find the echoes and and interrogate what you're doing in this situation and what what other people are doing in this situation mm-hmm.
1: I'm curious to know what kind of reader you are, yeah,
2: not
0: Th- not not very good <laughs> well i mean
1: i I also am curious if
2: uh, having been a literary agent affects your reading now, yes, it does, oh yeah,
0: hang on, let me have a sip of this drink okay. <laughs> So I, uh, I love, I love books. <laughs> That's the quote. I really love, I really love the idea of books. Yes. Um, sometimes books themselves aren't so great. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things when you look at a great bookshelf, like I have here in front of me, as you think about all of the work, and time and effort that has pour, uh, been poured into into these pages, uh, every book, I mean, all of these books required huge investment of both time and insane levels of confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that confidence is natural and sociopathic. Sometimes that <laughs> level of confidence <laughs> that everyone in the world wants to hear what you have to say right. is sociopathic. And I'm going to point at certain books up there, uh-huh. <laughs> Are these in any particular order? Just general alphabetical. General alphabetical. So I'm also pointing at. Um. Oh, you don't have this person's book here. That's interesting. Oh boy. Sometimes that. Sometimes that confidence is sociopathic. You just feel the world deserves to hear what you have to say. Was it Ernest Hemingway? He's over here. Nope. Oh, nope, no. Oh damn. No. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes. That confidence gets, you know, and I think most times that confidence gets ginned up because mm-hmm. you feel you have to re- say something. And even though you don't know that people are going to, you know, need to hear it or even should, you have to do it, right? Right. So in that sense, every book that's ever produced is noble. This this premise that every book is noble gets h- highly tested when you're working at a literary agency particularly if you're junior at the agency and an assistant and your job is to really go through the slush as Mm -hmm. they call it, the stuff that gets, you know, the, the the letters and the manuscripts that just come in from the most hopeful people on earth Mm -hmm. and you appreciate how many people want to write a book and, or have written a book I think is what they really want to do because that makes people feel that they've contributed somewhat to the story of life, you know, Mm -hmm. to have gotten something out there. They're not, they're not going to be forgotten, and a lot of those books are dumb and mm-hmm. terrible and <laughs> awful. And it's, you know, we were talking at some point about going to the Strand bookstore and appreciating just how many books have been published and forgotten. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you, th- you know, you think of how all the books that have been written but not published and forgotten, which du- you know doubles that easily if not triples it. Sure, reading manuscripts really became an exercise in. A dual exercise in tedium and heartbreak Mm -hmm. in that you know you have to say no to people all the time it was reassuring to appreciate that you know when those things came through that that had something you remember oh yeah having something having some talent is pretty rare so if you've got some it's not as bad as you think like Mm. it's easier to cut through i think than the, the moldy books at the Strand would suggest and actually get something read. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But there's, you know, reading books became the most psychologically damaging homework that I mm-hmm. had for seven years. And even before then, I was like, if I had to choose between, I mean, I loved, I loved Borges, and I loved literary games personship, and I loved... All kinds of different books and you know mysteries and stuff. But even before then, I was like, if "There's an X Men. I'll read that instead." You know I mean? Like, yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'll watch, maybe I'll watch Brass Eye or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and so it's actually been a, uh, you know, it's now been almost, you know, it's been 18 years since I left that job, and I would say only within the past 10 through discipline have I really gotten back into reading wow. for pleasure. And, and truly just not, and, and and part of the benefit of being older and not having to really prove anything to even myself anymore, I can just read for pleasure. Like really reading, I won't say junk because it's not junk, but reading procedural crime books was a huge part of my, specifically reading the Parker series by Donald Westlake writing as um, yeah. Richard Stark. Mm-hmm was you know a huge part of my post uh, post 2016 election recovery mm-hmm. um it was just pure you know books and stories exist for a couple of different reasons in history one is sort of to record history and the oral tradition right the other is to promote uh, essentially morally instruct, create social cohesion by saying we're part of this tribe and these are the stories we tell. These are our myths and these are our values that are encoded in these myths. But then all the time throughout all of that, it's just distraction. Like right. it's dark out there. Here we are by a fire. Let me tell you something that'll keep you focused here rather than think about what's out there in the dark. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those, those Parker books were for me, incre- I mean, they're at first I thought it was just because they were, I mean, have you, have you read any of them? But I haven't. No, I have. they're fun. Mm-hmm. I've
1: only read a couple, but it's one of those that I feel like I could just always pick one up.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're candy. Yeah. I mean, they're candy. And they're easy and they're blunt and the character that they're, whose point of view it's told for, from is this blunt character named Parker who is a, a an un, unrepentant career thief. He's a heister. He puts mm. gangs together to knock over banks and armored cars and anti-coin dealers and junk Mm -hmm. and he is brutal and he is an amoral and a true anti-hero but you you know you're into him i was like why am i so into this guy (laughs) and if and at first i'm reading this going like oh this is fun because it's it's so clumsy and blunt Mm -hmm. but then donald westlake um introduces later in the series introduces other characters and will occasionally take a chapter in the book and tell it from that character's point of view and you realize oh this he's not just a blunt writer like right. these other characters have incredible inner lives that are alert to feelings and emotions and they feel like equally fully formed humans the parker character who ne- who is it's a third person book but who is essentially the narrator of the books this is not his style this is not Westlake's style. this is a character that he created and it is a, it is a portrait of a, a, essentially a sociopath mm. and I was like, now I know why I love these books because like what would it be to have no feelings about now <laughs> <laughs> like right about now I would enjoy not having any feelings yeah um, yeah that would be nice. so that that's kind of where I am now as a reader
2: Do you want to talk about we we have a section what'd you buy did you have you bought anything recently?
0: Yes <laughs> so i just bought i was at Greenlight books uh in on fulton street here mm-hmm. in brooklyn
2: yeah because now you have to think you have actions, to differentiate yeah because there's another one
0: yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh and i bought the the book of short stories what it means when a man falls from the sky by, by an author whose name i know <laughs> by leslie neka arema I'm, I'm not sure that i'm pronouncing that correctly, um, she is of Nigerian descent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a Nigerian-American living in Minnesota, I believe. Wow. And it's a book of amazing short stories, uh, uh, largely about um, uh, young women of Nigerian descent or in Nigeria. Uh, and I am learning a lot about the Nigerian Civil War, mm-hmm. but through these intensely personal and ruefully humorous stories um that are just beautifully written obviously this is uh n- not about a sociopathic uh white male uh, bank robber it's <laughs> <laughs> a very nice change of pace yeah yeah it sounds like it
1: i'm excited to read i've had that on my shelf for a while i I'm am ac- i'm gonna bump super it up readable yeah.
0: yeah yeah i mean and that's it like that is yeah. i really put a high credit on readability these days because um you know, my, my wife teaches uh, high school English at Stuyvesant High School, and um, she uh, she teaches a lot of hard books. And then she kind of made it her mission to read some really hard books. Mm-hmm. Middle March was yep. her. And yeah. I've, never, I've never read it. And she, you know, that is like a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are you know, periods in that where it's like, I can't go on. Why am I? Why am I doing this to myself? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know why you aren't either. Here's Cujo. It's right here. <laughs>
2: you could put that down at any time. <laughs> yeah.
0: But she did it. So I'm maybe if I, maybe if I build up my skills enough, I'm sort of bad. <laughs> I'm in rudimentary training. I'm in I'm in reading rehab. Skills. Oh yeah. And, yeah.
2: Yeah. You're. Uh...
0: It's not that I could. It's not like I didn't read books in the 2000s. It just was. There was just this 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 feeling of. Uh, yeah, have homework to it. That was no fun. Yeah. And I think a lot of people- Homework,
2: homework reading is, is always difficult. Yeah.
1: Do you want to talk about something
0: you
2: yeah, bought? What'd you buy?
1: So this is not something that I bought. Sure. Um, at some point, someone in my family did buy it. My There's a little bit of backstory. My uh, uncles on my mom's side grew up in the 60s, and they were huge into the emerging sci-fi community. They knew Robert Silverberg and Isaac Asimov. And, oh, like personally, they knew them. Yeah. They were hanging out at Asimov's bolo type parties. Oh yeah, and yeah. I've like I've heard these stories, and they were like teenagers. There's some I don't know. The '60s were a weird time, but uh, all of these books were in my grandmother's house. She passed away maybe 15 years ago, and I wasn't quite at a point in my life where I was conscious of like, man, I'm gonna want all of these books. And I thought most of them were gone. I got a couple cool copies of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right. So I'm home. Uh, over Memorial Day weekend and my mom is like, I found this box of books that's from your grandmother's house. And Most of them were like moth-eaten and mildewy and terrible. But there is a first edition copy of Harlan Ellison's uh, Alone Against Tomorrow. Oh, okay. Which has Repent Harlequin in it. It has I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And it is like, it is a beautiful first edition copy of this wow. book. that's awesome. And I was like, holy shit, I can't. So you sold it? <laughs> yeah, I sold it, and uh, I'm I'm moving to Maine. I'm buying a summer house in Maine. Oh, fantastic! Uh, that's a beautiful story. I'm really excited to read it, though, yeah. and especially to like I know it was my uncles at some point, and I know that they probably were like, "Hey, Harlan, what's your new book?"
2: So that's cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Christopher. Uh, yeah, I I bought this book. Um, well, it was sent to us, so I didn't buy it either. But uh, oh, Tessa Moschweg's my year of rest my year of rest and relaxation oh yes which is about a, oh. a woman who decides to medically induce herself into a coma so that she can have a year off i guess is, is
1: the plot fiction yes oh wow i thought it was a memoir too and then i started reading it and then i was like wait a minute is this is fiction yeah. oh i feel way better about her mental state yeah uh yeah that sounds cool
2: it sounds like something that. Speaking of like, I'll tell you what. Take a year off.
0: You can have the exact same experience. Just read the Parker novels. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Should we close it out with a recommendation? So oh yeah, why don't we? Move yeah, to the wait other a minute. Side.
0: Here's some things that I gotta talk about. Okay. Oh
1: yeah. We read some.
3: Recommend you take
0: a look. Yeah. first of all i i'm looking for a recommendation i presume you I, have you read sick by portries to cockpaw yet oh i haven't yet i really like her writing and i really want to read that so i'm recommending that to myself okay, okay. nice else, that's on my list okay now i'm looking around at this wonderful book uh, uh uh book case and i'm going to recommend a book that i got in belfast maine by Samantha Hunt which is I can't I can't remember the title it's Mr. 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 Splitfoot. Splitfoot Mr. Splitfoot. Mr. Splitfoot is a great book. Mm-hmm. Everyone should read that one. I got some uh with some books up here by my by my uh, friend and uh inspiration Heidi Julewitz mm-hmm. She's great. Uh she's amazing and if you want to read a little bit about the same town in Maine, check out The Folded Clock, uh which was a great a great book of memoiristic essays that I love. Got some Neil Gaiman up there. Of course. Love Neil Gaiman. Uh Cujo by Stephen King. I see you got the, you got Mr. Mercedes there. Mr. Mercedes is is unbelievably good. Okay. Like it
1: you know whatever 60 books in. I was like, "Holy shit, you can do something new." Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh no, he's he's inc- he, he's incredible. Keeps doing it. Yeah. Uh well there are other things I saw here. There was more so many <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got my friend Liz Gilbert, The Signature of All Things, great book. Oh, and uh you have you had her on your show? NK Jemison, Nora Jemison? No, but I really want to. Oh yeah. No. You, everybody out there, read the fifth season, the first of the Broken Earth trilogy. I mm-hmm. mean, one of the one of the things that really rescued reading for me was um reading her reading her novels. Mm-hmm. And it was that that year, of a couple of years ago, when um, I got invited to host the Nebula Awards in Chicago, and I decided to read as many of the nom- novel nominees as I could. Yeah, and I I read her her, uh, her uh, Broken Earth trilogy and Lecky's uh, Ancillary Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, these are all science fiction fantasy, but both in different ways redefine. Both genres and create yeah. new ones. So, wow. those, are, those are my recommendations. Yeah. And that was That's just like, list. those are big long books. And I was like, I get it. Novel ideas, homework. And yeah. I'm like, <laughs> nope. The greatest. Wow. You, need to ha- you need to have Nora on. She's amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, do you want
2: to recommend something? Do you want me to?
1: Um, I can. I will recommend speaking of readable short stories and also of vacationing in states that are not our own. Okay. Lauren Groff's Florida. Oh, she does not exactly make it a place that you want to go no um i feel like nobody who writes about florida jeff vandermeer too it's like it just seems like a terrifying spooky place yeah uh but it i loved fates and furies a couple of years ago and i florida i doled out for myself i would hide the book so that i would get a little bit of space between Novel? stories short stories short
0: stories mm-hmm.
1: there are all right probably six short stories i think it's five or six that have a character who is probably the same character This unnamed mother of two boys living in florida oh yeah i'll read
0: this Here, yeah sounds good
1: uh it's it's just fantastic did yeah. you see the movie the florida project yes i did
0: <sighs> best movie of the year
1: i loved mm. that movie willem defoe should have
0: won an academy award you know what no disagree he's an amazing actor he was wonderful in that movie I don't know who else I don't remember who won that category who did win that probably you know what I'd give Willem Dafoe an Oscar every day if I could I'm not saying you're wrong (laughs) oh I see what yes yes, yes, in that movie he was the most actory of the actors yeah Yeah, and that's true as far as I, I don't know how the performances are you know the the woman who plays the mother in that was someone that they found on Instagram. Yeah, the chi- the children are who act in that are obviously children. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how did they get these? How did this this director get these performances? And then I read, oh yeah, well you made that movie on his uh, uh, his iPhone yeah. at mm-hmm. one point. So I was like, "Oh, well, that's how you do it," because you basically have a hidden camera. Right. right? People forget that it's there. This movie shot on thirty-five millimeter film. I do not know how he got like because yeah. those are big rigs. That, oh yeah, they're there in your face when you're doing it. So, I know a little bit about acting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Oh, uh, I'm gonna recommend. This is like a.
2: This is like the candiest candy book, but it's a Charles Soul's uh, "The Oracle," and it's about this twenty-year-old gig bassist. It's a little bit. It's such a. It's a twenty-year-old what? Gig bassist, you know. He,
0: oh yeah, okay, gotcha.
2: And uh, he wakes up one
0: morning with a hundred and eight predictions. The, it's, the, it's, the gig, it's the gig bass economy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dad. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um,
2: it's uh He wakes up one morning with a hundred and eight predictions uh, about the next three years, and they start. He tries just predicting a couple things, that start coming true, and so he. Um, he puts up a website and sells off the predictions to oh cool and then it goes off from there of like not having a private life and and it, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment of what if <laughs> i what if i a white male was the most important man in the world
0: <laughs> what if i a bassist could make money <laughs> <laughs> both fine <laughs> that fantasy. is truly a fantasy <laughs> um
2: and it's a but it's very thought out and it's a very interesting sort of um privacy, and what what it, it looks like when we're, we're... How close we are to a brink of destruction and how, and how we need to heal our divides. It's candy, you said? It is candy. The Oracle. Yeah, the Oracle. And then I'm going to recommend one other thing. It's a poetry collection uh, by no, this woman, goodbye. Sue mm-hmm.
0: Goyette. How do I get out of here?
2: <laughs> and it's called Brief In- Reincarnations of a Girl.
0: Brief and, Reincarnations of a Girl. And
2: it's about a... Um, it's about
0: this court case. It's not about so, anything. It's poetry. It's a
2: real court case uh, that tr- was translated into poetry about this um, this, bipolar, this 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 bipolar two-year-old that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then medicated to death. Oh, my Whoa. goodness. And it's about the court case. And it all takes place in the courtroom, but it's collected
0: poetry. Wow. Wow. Yeah. All right. This is poetry that I will allow. I like poetry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I'm being a jerk about poetry. I love poetry, of course I do.
2: So yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool. And I have the other recommendation is, of course, John Hodgman's Vacation. Vacation Land. Land. Vacation and, Land. And available now. It's a fantastic collection. Of it's really good. Essays. Thank and you very
1: much. It will soothe. It will soothe you.
0: You'll yeah. either find humor, you'll find pathos, maybe you'll find both. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, look, we focused on we focused on the privilegy, uh heavy duty stuff that's in the book, but that's like two seconds. Yeah, yeah. there's also the rest of it, it's just laughs, building
1: rock sculptures. Yeah,
0: laughs and laughs. <laughs> the I, the best
1: reveal of marijuana <laughs> in a book <laughs> ever. Oh, well, that, let's put that
0: on the cover, With Scott Press. <laughs> I just—I oh. have been contacted by a by a popular marijuana news website for an interview. So. Oh, very nice. Uh, Vacation Land available now at wherever you buy your books. You guys, truly, the nice things you said about my book were really meaningful to me, uh, and I'm not going to lie—it's the reason I'm here. So, <laughs> but I since then have become a great fan of the podcast, and uh, thank you very much for having me on
3: thanks so much
2: for coming Yeah, we're so glad we can make this happen and all of you out there in listener land please uh, go to our Patreon patreon.com SMDB if you'd like to support us or
0: just, SMDB or
2: leave us an iTunes review
1: just tweet at us, tweet us email us, us. Yeah, we yell like, at
2: us on the street yeah, we like all less, forms of less of the yelling uh, and yeah we'll see
1: you all soon, bye bye Bye. bye.
0: you know there's you have a a sign there from the strand and it reminds me of you know when i moved to new york and would go to the strand and i would just look around and realize oh man there are a lot of books that have been published every, <laughs> every one of these books was somebody's dream and look they're all being sold off for a nickel <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh my god that yeah. is a depressing thought